all of those kind of assumptions of control and assumptions of capability underpinning that control have been severely tested and in many instances have been found to be wanting. You know, we are less good than we think at this. We have been less prepared than we assumed we would be. Hi, this is Eric Pagli in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Beautiful Stockholm, Sweden right now, covered in snow. Adds some cheer to an otherwise uncheery, um, prolonged crisis that we're just about one year into at this point. Uh, Mark Vandenbosch, who's joining me here in the studio on episode 23 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, the podcast that's been on the air for just about one year now. And we're actually uh, circling back now to our um, second guest, a guest that we had on this podcast back in late March of uh, 2020, uh, Professor Paul Tehart of uh, Utrecht University. He's going to be our expert guest that we'll be hearing uh, from uh, later on in uh, this episode. He's going to be talking about a, a new book that uh, kind of uh, encompasses the entirety of the uh, pandemic crisis so far and looking at it through the lens of crisis management. A lot of really interesting um, insights that uh, Professor Paul Tehart will give us in a few minutes. But first, uh, Mark Vandenbosch, good to see you in person here in the studio. And um, we're going to cover some geography in this first uh, part of the uh, episode. Uh, you're going to look around the world. You're 360 going uh, to Asia, to uh, to Europe, or perhaps North America, and uh, right here in uh, Sweden as well, where we're kind of uh, in a bit of a dip. It seems like wave two is going down a little bit, but there is uh, quite a bit of concern about a potential third wave starting in a couple of weeks if this uh, UK strain of the virus uh, really uh, gets rooted here in Sweden, which seems to be uh, actually happening at the moment. Right. I guess there's uh, some cases in one of the uh, larger towns on the west coast of Sweden where uh, there's uh, actually quite a high concentration of cases relating to the UK strain. There are other strains out there. The South African strain is something that people are concerned about. And it's been, uh, I guess, a little over a year, and uh, the world is still very much in the middle of all this, even though there's a sense of normalcy from the perspective that we've been dealing with it for such a long time. We've developed certain types of uh, tools to deal with the, the daily realities of the pandemic. But I have in front of me the latest statistics. A year ago, we never would have phantomed that uh, some of these numbers would come about. In America, I guess, which is uh, unfortunately the most impressive in a way, negatively speaking, you have an excess of 470,000 deaths close to half a million in Sweden, a place that uh, for some people has been a model, for others, I guess, uh, something to criticize, but nonetheless, in the top 20 in terms of mortality per million inhabitants, so that's not so terrific either. Well, a Danish study came out that compared uh, Sweden, Denmark, and, uh, and Norway, just, just really made it clear how, how much worse off we were in terms of, uh, of the mortality rates, way more here in Sweden than in those other countries. And I think a part of the uh, the criticism was, and this is kind of a recurring theme, is the idea that um, the response was really managed here in Sweden by the experts, people at the um, Folk Hälsomyndigheten, the uh, Swedish Agency of Public Health, I think it's called. In other countries, it was much more the politicians that um, that made the, the final decisions. Now, you might think that things should be managed by experts, and of course, experts should have a role, but this will be an interesting thing for political scientists going forward to really analyze, you know, the, what's the best way to, to govern uh, complex situations like a pandemic. It's a tricky situation because also, to be fair to Sweden, if we look at the statistics, we have a, a death rate, a mortality rate per million that is actually nearly identical to France. 
And France has been far more restrictive. The politicians have been involved and has instituted some of the more draconian measures in all of Europe with many, many total lockdowns and curfews that still are in place today. So I wonder, you know, how many parameters you have to take into account. But one of the places in the world that has been most successful in dealing with the pandemic is Taiwan. And uh, there was actually a case uh, just yesterday in Taiwan. This made news uh, over there. They identified patient number 923. That means 923 documented cases of COVID, not deaths. These are just people who've tested positive, most of them fully recovered. And this is over the course of over a year. Now, in this particular case, it turned out to be uh, an Afghan businessman who was on his way to Dubai who had, had taken a test and was proven to be positive. And then they did contact tracing and identify all the people he had had contact with and have numbers and, you know, IDs on all these people and addresses and were able to get them to stay at home. And the way they've been able to manage this crisis is unbelievable, but it seems to be very, very, very methodical. And also, I guess, in a societal environment where people are very keen at following the rules precisely. And I think they took these very methodical actions and very um, direct actions, but not necessarily draconian, but they got on top of this very early. Like, I think December 31st is when they started instituting some of these uh, different measures. And uh, actually, we can go back to our episode number five from early April with uh, Dave Truba, who uh, lives in Taiwan. And um, he gave us an analysis of the situation in Taiwan and how they, they manage this crisis from, from very early on. And maybe that's having this sort of this first mover um, initiative, you know, really getting on this before things got out of hand was probably one of the keys of the successful time. Taiwanese response. And perhaps one of the keys also is their ability to communicate clearly to the citizenship there. And I think also the relationship between uh, governing authorities, uh, the politicians, the bureaucracy, and the population. More in countries like America, it's a very different kind of relationship between um, the governed and, and the governing, as it is perhaps in a country like Taiwan. Yeah, and you speak often in the United States of the, of the difficulties also to get the federal and local authorities to sort of sync uh, with the public health organizations. And uh, it's a very complex uh, decision making apparatus and it takes a long time to get things done and to get a unified view as to what the best approach is which is obviously nearly impossible and it has many many impacts but many more people nowadays can say that they've been touched by COVID in one way or another it might be now it's not uncommon that people have had it themselves and uh, I suspect for many it was a fairly traumatic experience a lot of fear associated with this mere thought that you know there's a chance that you will develop some severe symptoms is difficult and others of course have lost loved ones or friends or colleagues to COVID and all this has had a huge psychological impact on populations all over the world and there's actually a lot of studies that show that there's an increase in PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder associated with the pandemic almost like a warlike situation I mean, it's been going on so long now. I mean, it's, I think it's wearing people down. I mean, the restrictions, the lockdowns, even though us here in Sweden, we've been um, much more uh, at liberty to do things that we want to do for better or for worse, as, uh, as some of these statistics we talked about earlier uh, suggest. But yeah, certainly I think uh, people all over the world are going to be really um, reeling from this for years to come. I'm looking right now at a study that was conducted by the CDC on mental health. It shows that increase in PTSD from last year to this year has been 26%. Anxiety and depression is up 30%. Even something called suicidal ideation, in other words, when you consider killing yourself, has been up by over 11%. Well, this also feeds into the discussion of uh, how stringent the measures should be taken by the authorities, whether there should be lockdowns that, that maybe uh, exacerbate some of these these, these negative psychological point. trends. Or is the disease, is, is preventing the spread of the disease um, that much more important than these PTSD um, symptoms and effects that are obviously uh, for real? 
Okay, so Professor Paul DeHart uh, from uh, Utrecht University. He's a political scientist, uh, public administration and crisis management scholar. Uh, he's co-authored a book that is not released yet, but I had a, had a chance to see a draft of it. It's called uh, Governing COVID-19, A Crisis Management Perspective. Uh, he wrote it together with uh, Arian Boyne, who we've also had on this podcast, and uh, Alan McConnell. So let's get into the analysis with uh, Professor Paul Tahard, second time around here in this podcast. Some reflections on the crisis in general, looking at it through a crisis management perspective. Here, Paul starts by explaining how this crisis, this pandemic crisis that's a year and counting, how it differs from the typical crisis that Paul and other crisis management scholars usually analyze. A, obviously, it's extremely long duration. Uh, you know, the normal curve of a crisis is, you know, something bad happens or is at great risk of happening, we throw everything at the kitchen sink at it. And, you know, as a matter of days or weeks, uh, we, that is governments, societies, organizations, assume some measure of understanding, control, grip, uh, and manage to kind of contain that threat or work through the conflict, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and bring this thing down to you know, business as usual, and there might be a long tail of investigation and uh, accountability problems about what the hell just happened, etc. But normally, it's it's almost like an inverted U curve of of stress, right? So stress goes up, things are pretty tense for a, li- a little while, but then you know we wind this down, and here we are, um, you know, almost a year in, and uh, we still face levels of uncertainty that are as big, if not bigger, than in the early days and weeks of the pandemic. So protracted, irreducible, constantly morphing forms of uncertainty that even though we have probably the most highly science-led responses or science-informed responses in history, we cannot reduce those uncertainties. It's not just the virus itself, uh, you know, the behavior of the virus, you know, all those mutations, etc. But it is also very much the social, economic, uh, psychological impact and uh, interaction effects of the anti-pandemic measures. That aspect, I think, is very marked and, and very significant and very puzzling. Long duration, protracted, seemingly irreducible uncertainty. Which then means, obviously, that policymakers continue to have to make big calls without the benefit of all the facts on the table, which is normally what governments, particularly in rich Western, uh, well-organized, knowledge-intensive societies, are able to do. You know, they delay making decisions until they know what they're talking about. They have committees, they commission studies, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas here, the pace is punishing. And from week on week on week, government face these dilemmas. Like now, you know, with the British and other mutations, everybody's kind of facing this conundrum, certainly in Western Europe, where your actual numbers from the second wave tend to be going down in most countries. Uh, people are really, really keen to uh, regain some measure of uh, freedom in countries that have been, you know, in various levels of lockdown since October, November, etc. And yet, 
you kind of know that there's these really bad mutations out there with much higher R ratios. But how do you then weigh that, the possibility of them striking you in real time when there's so much pressure to open up uh, life? So so it's just a snapshot of, because uh, if we go back one month, you would have another kind of king dilemma that governments would be struggle with. And that just getting more knowledge would not help you resolve them because they are not just dilemmas because of uncertainty. They're all also huge dilemmas of values and interests. And it was very interesting when you and I talked about um, maybe eight months ago, Eric, the overwhelming imperative, which was, you know, at that time held to be non-negotiable, was how do we save as many lives as possible? Uh, the public health frame on the crisis at that stage was largely undisputed. The dispute was how do we best serve, you know, those public health purposes? Uh, and it was, you know, the, the herd immunity approach versus other approaches, etc. But this was all within a public health dominated frame, where where protecting the vulnerable was, you know, the moral high ground. Uh, we saw that you know, change as the social and economic pain of these measures started to kick in. And by now, it's it's perfectly legitimate to take a more, uh, if you like, utilitarian perspective and, and ask the question about, you know, what really is the greatest good for the greatest number here, even in paradoxically public health terms. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about tertiary effects on children and other and, and other groups of, you know, protected uh, boredom, unemployment, confinement in unhealthy family situations, etc. So it's become not just a, you know, a series of boxes with big question marks thrown at you, but the moral issues, the value issues, the value conflicts have become a lot more palpable. And part of those value conflicts manifest themselves in, you know, more protest or more vocal protest, uh, but certainly also in a more subtle form of, you know, uh, less compliance with measures or with requests from governments to exercise self-restraint, etc. So it's it's quite a ride. And in our book, we, we try to describe the enormity of this crisis from a crisis management perspective, how hard it has turned out to be to, if you like, get things done as a government. You would have thought, and, and certainly most pandemic plans that were in existence uh, when COVID struck, you know, there was this kind of assumption that we can do stuff, that we can you know, ramp up testing, that we can isolate uh, people who have been in, infected, uh, and that therefore we can ring fence uh, the virus, etc., all of those kind of assumptions of control and assumptions of capability underpinning that control have been severely tested and in many instances have been found to be wanting. You know, we are less good than we think at this. We have been less prepared than we assumed we would be. We had, you know, less capability in terms of stockpiles, uh, et cetera, et cetera, of critical resources. That's kind of the the downside of the story. The upside of the story is that faced with these challenges to our ability to control things, 
Um, we've also uh, had very, you know, uh, inspiring, gratifying, reassuring instances of productive improvisation, of the supply chains holding, of quite significant movement, bottom-up movement, you know, acts of social solidarity and kindness, if you like, acting as a complement to, you know, government-led measures of support. And, you know, it was not just the welfare state doing its work, so to speak. It was a lot of bottom-up community initiative helping lonely, isolated, or otherwise vulnerable people through this sort of long, dark night of, uh, of COVID. So, so we are learning a lot, including me, you know, as a supposedly experienced crisis management research. Uh, even I am learning a hell of a lot in this uh, crisis about both hidden vulnerabilities and, if you like, hidden strengths uh, and hidden hidden sources of resilience uh, of our our ways of life and uh, our ways of governing ourselves. You mentioned. Um Solidarity there, Paul, a very interesting aspect of this crisis. And uh, you use the term in this in this book that I've seen a draft of, the term solidarity crisis. Can you perhaps explain a bit about that? Because obviously it wasn't all just solidarity. There was a lot of solidarity no. or, or lack thereof in, in many cases, uh, whether you're looking at a European Union level or perhaps on a national level or a community level or between different age groups and such. Yeah. Yeah. So so we, did, we, we use that term solidarity crisis to describe if you like, those first months or to characterize those first weeks and months where there was a lot of this kind of bottom-up response. So the term solidarity uh, refers to, if you like, organic solidarity of uh, people, communities, both uh, face-to-face and online, forming to, if you like, plug holes in the official response. Or uh, And there was certainly, I think, a kind of shoulder-to-shoulder element to the early stages of this crisis, which is very typical of what we see during natural disasters. In many natural disasters, but also there could also be man-made disasters, let's say, you know, big industrial accidents or something. If there's, you know, widespread suffering, acute widespread suffering, there is this kind of what disaster researchers refer to as the mass assault of the disaster site. There's so much I mean, outburst of volunteering that sometimes, you know, the whole disaster site is literally choked up with people wanting to help. Um, and there was certainly that element to it. So to that extent, uh, the label solidarity applies. The label solidarity is also pertinent to describe, if you like, parts of the narratives that most governments have run in this crisis where they appeal to our sense of solidarity to restrain our own behavior. So those of us who are less uh, you know, likely to become seriously ill as a result of becoming infected, uh, or those of us whose jobs are secure throughout this crisis or their sources of income are, are relatively secure. There have certainly been appeals on us, on our self-restraint, on our kindness, on our good judgment in our role as consumers, etc. You know, buy locals, support your local shop, your local retailers. Go and, you know, still uh, have takeaway food from the restaurant that you otherwise go to and so on. So there, there, there's been a narrative of, if you like, 
expected solidarity with up solidarity, pleas for solidarity. That's that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is implied in your question, which is that in reality, this crisis, the structure of this crisis, is not one that naturally invokes solidarity. In fact, you, this crisis is much better conceptualized as a gigantic collective action problem. So the the young are expected to sacrifice, you know, a year uh, or more, you know, probably closer to two years. And if if you live in the global south, perhaps a hell of a lot longer than that, of crucial stages in their, at that point, still, you know, relatively short lives, they're asked to sacrifice a great deal to, you know, to save the generation of their grandparents, if you like, or to save, uh, you know, a limited number of people that have other sources of vulnerability for this particular virus. There is, as you say, both within the EU and along the north-south axis, there's quite a lot of pressure on uh, governments to, you know, put their own people first. That's the kind of the domestic pressure that governments are under. At the same time, there is not just a moral imperative, but there is the reality of global interdependency that pushes those governments the other way. You know, one of the perhaps not altogether surprising, but still you know, worrying aspects of this crisis is just how weak are um, mechanisms, international coordination mechanisms, whether it's the EU system or the WHO system or the UN system or even the IMF system, how weak in the sense of slow, tentative, internally conflicted those mechanisms, those bodies have proven to be to deal, to address this collective action problem and work out ways in which, you know, the strong can help the weak uh, a little bit, not just out of the goodness of their own hearts, but but even, you know, through strategic self-interest. Uh, but uh, as in many instances of crisis, to be aware of your long-term self-interest requires taking a long-term view of a crisis. The problem is that in many crises, governments don't. Because the pressures of the here and now can be so overwhelming that you sometimes see a kind of what we call a collapse of the future in the mindsets of government leaders and government bodies. You know, they are glad to make it through the week. They're struggling with, you know, the the box with the question mark that they are facing this week or the policy conflict that they're facing this week. And so some of those larger questions about you know, for example, around vaccination, of course, that's particularly galling. Uh, everybody's racing to get this stuff for their own people. But what if, you know, Western countries, the rich or the rich part of the world persists in, in doing that, thereby depriving, given the scarcity of vaccination, uh, of vaccines for the foreseeable future, depriving global South countries of vaccination? You know, the economic consequences there and human consequences there will be enormous. And they will kick us in the butt, uh, even if it's only in the form of, uh, you know, more virus mutations that then will undermine the effectiveness of, of our vaccines, but also in terms of a huge and huge debt resolution issue that we'll be making our way. Plus, you know, further loss of the if you like, moral high ground of the West or, you know, the rich North uh, in the eyes of people in, in the global South with, you know, all kinds of 
longer-term consequences in terms of uh, radicalization, polarization, etc., etc. So there can be a very, very long tail to this crisis, way beyond you know the duration of the pandemic in our parts of the world. The long tail can still affect us if we don't address these collective action problems that are becoming sharper and sharper as the crisis deepens. Uh, if we don't address them properly through those mechanisms. But unfortunately, those mechanisms have proven to be tardy and you know, indecisive or dominated by strong players who simply don't want to play ball. I'm talking about this long tail to this crisis, and one of the lines from the book that I liked uh, quite a bit, the long shadow it will cast in our societies is only beginning to form. Sounds very, very ominous, but I guess it is. And it's, yeah. I mean, we talked about this, I think, last time, about uh, 10 months ago, that this will have a long shadow, a long tail. And, uh, and yeah. we, we're only starting to really realize exactly what some of those, those consequences will be. But how, I mean, how do you, I mean, how do you think downrange when you're in the middle of a crisis? How can a politician or, or political leader or whoever really make any effort to think years ahead when they're really dealing with such immediate oh, contingencies? Yeah. It's bloody hard. And, uh, you know, since we last spoke, I've done quite a bit of critical friend work or sometimes consulting work. But often I, was, I got asked by various Dutch and Australian government bodies to be a kind of, you know, critical friend, devil's advocate and so on. And one of my humbling experience has been how difficult it has has been for people like me that play those roles. And often we were together, you know, with colleagues forming kind of red teams or whatever you want to call them. How difficult it was to get that message through, lengthen your time horizon, broaden the range of factors, or if, if you like, broaden the system you have in mind the boundaries of the system or systems you have in mind when you make your decisions. I'll give you one example. I sat on one of those types of boards for the city of Utrecht, which is the fourth city in the Netherlands, about 350,000 people. They were doing, the, the, the public service of the municipality were doing a kind of a strategic what-if exercise to basically you know, consider the budgetary and therefore the policy programmatic consequences of this pandemic. These discussions took place uh, late May into June into early July. It proved, you know, almost impossible for me. It, I really had to pull out all the stops to get them to even consider a scenario in which the pandemic would not be over by uh, March this year. They felt that, you know, so in, in July 2020, they felt that the worst case scenario that they could possibly put before their politicians, their political decision makers, was that the whole thing would last until March. Whereas, you know, even at the time, it didn't, you know, require a genius to assume that things would be much longer than that. At that time, we didn't know just how fast the vaccine development uh, would take place. You know, we're living a miracle in many ways, right? That the fact that needles are going into arms, et cetera, and that they seem to be doing their job. That is a miracle. It was much more rational to assume uh, that we would be living with this for much longer. But they basically came back to us, these public servants came back to us, this kind of red team, saying, look, they will just freak out if we if we extend the timeline. Because when you extend the timeline, 
on, you know, basically shops being closed, tourism being down, universities being closed, etc. What you get is a financial timeline that is not going down in linear fashion, that's going down in exponential fashion. Uh, so in other words, including a scenario that is six months ahead or 12 months ahead would deliver budgetary pictures that were just too hard to contemplate because those budgetary pictures then have to translate in political choices about what are we stopping to fund, which groups are we going to leave unprotected, et cetera, et cetera. That's morally complex and it's politically unpalatable. You know, it may drive wedges into coalitions and so on and so forth. So I think that's the the core of the reason uh, why it is so difficult to, in the middle of a crisis, get people to to not just think long term. You know, everybody anybody can do a bit of thinking and put a pen to paper and so on, but to actually work those things through, get them on agendas, get politicians to really pay attention to that. I, it's very difficult, and, and it's partly public service loyalty. You know, they 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 know how difficult their their political masters' lives are already, and so part of their instinct is to actually shield their political principles for even more bad news, which of course is not, I think, a, a professionally responsible thing to do. But at least at a human level, it's quite understandable. In the long term, in some in some cases, is not even all that long term. I mean, it seems, at least uh, from what I've seen here in Sweden, it seems like the second wave that many people expected wasn't really adequately uh, planned for when uh, there was a bit of a dip in the summertime. It seems like many of the decision makers couldn't even really take that scenario seriously, that there would be a second wave. Yeah. Uh, look, I I had the, um, the great honor of actually... Um, being asked to talk to the Swedish cabinet around, would have been in April, I'd say late April, maybe early May or something. And so this, it was one of the weirdest webinars I ever gave because uh, for security reasons, they could see me, but I could not see them. So it was like me speaking into a black hole. And, and one of the ministers was then sort of facilitating the debate. What I was struck with in that um, hour and a half or whatever it was, was how many of of the Swedish ministers were actually looking at this crisis with a, what I would describe as a pretty strategic, i.e. long-term, longish term, and uh, realistic kind of perspective. They they were not in a kind of groupthink mode of ah oh, you know we've we've kind of you know we've had a ru- a rough old month in uh, you know. March and April, but we we are past the peak now, and every everything will be hunky dory. I found them quite astute and realistic, and yet, uh, as you observe, Eric, they and not just they, but governments around uh, Europe were surprised by the timing and later the depth of uh, that second wave. And I, I don't have the answer yet, but one hypothesis that I entertain is that part of the reason behind that surprise is precisely because they allowed themselves to be so led by mostly epidemiological experts. Because those experts, their scenarios were, by and large, what I've seen, certainly, was, yes, there will be a second wave. It will start to bite in late October, early November. 
And so they, they got the phenomenon right, but they got the timing completely wrong. Uh, and yet they were making these predictions with, you know, relatively big aplomb, if you like, in relatively firm voices. So no government was, I think, seriously surprised by the fact that they had a second wave, but they were lured into thinking that the odds were that the second wave would be like an autumn phenomenon. And what I find really difficult to understand is that as a non-epidemiologist and as a non-politician, but admittedly as a, you know, a crisis scholar, I put my nose to the ground in July, just walking, you know, walking the streets of our cities here in the Netherlands, just listening to people's stories about their holidays and their holiday plans, uh, going on holiday myself and, you know, finding myself at some point in Italy, right in the middle uh, of the area where the, all the problems started at some kind of al fresco dinner with the entire village literally rubbing shoulders on these big, lengthy, uh, you know, uh, Italian uh, dinner tables. And I had multiple moments during that summer where I thought, what the hell is going on? People are not behaving as they should. What happened to social distancing? What happened to our perception of threat? And I, for one, I don't want to sort of, you know, claim kind of infinite wisdom, but my conclusion and the conclusion of quite a few people that I talked with informally was this second wave is going to come a lot earlier. People are, are you know, everybody was, was fanning out across Europe as if nothing had happened. We felt we, we were owed a serious holiday and therefore we took a serious holiday. And lo and behold, what happens? People bring viruses back to their own countries and, and the whole thing bursts open, starts to burst open in August, early September. And I find it personally, I, that's, if I were an official evaluator of this crisis, I would cast a lot of spotlight on what, what the hell happened and did not happen between roughly early June and let's say late August, mid-September. What did not happen in terms of ongoing preparations to ramp up testing, ongoing preparations for future, you know, hypothetical vaccination campaigns, ongoing development or accelerating development of contact tracing capability, et cetera, et cetera. It was as if we, we allowed ourselves to think that, you know, the worst was over. I, I'm really surprised by this. And I'm sure that there are different stories to be told in different countries. I'm sure that uh, that there were exceptions to the rule that some countries kept pushing. But one thing I also, in conclusion, find really difficult to understand is not just that all of that happened, but that also certainly my government, I, I won't speak for the Swedish government or other governments, I haven't studied this carefully, but my government also literally went on vacation uh, when it came to controlling the narrative of the crisis. You know, staying proactive in its communication about what was going on, et cetera, et cetera. And really, it was in those summer months that because of the vacuum of government communication, that vacuum was started then to be filled by others who were doing a lot of, of communicating. And that was certainly a period 
in which some of the, you know, the conspiracy theories flourished uh, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, th this is kind of crisis management 101. Whatever you do, try and keep control of the narrative as much as you can. And certainly my government, you know, just threw that, that, that 101 rule book away. And that was pretty consequential. I totally agree, Paul. And, and looking at this uh, book you're uh, publishing now on the crisis, you mentioned uh, their narratives and craft credible narratives about deeply unsettling events. That's uh, basically the third phase or step three. And, and I guess when this, this crisis is going on, as long as this crisis has gone on, and I'm not sure if this these sort of sequences apply, if, if all of these step-by-step -step ways to sort of uh, – to, to sort of dissect a crisis, if they really apply when a crisis carries on for 12 months or 18 months or 24 months. But in, in terms of the sequence that you have here, and this, this is a pretty well-established uh, crisis management um, paradigm, after the uh, crafting of credible narratives comes work towards closure, trying to find a yeah. way to sort of bring the crisis to an end. Now, is that... Is that something that we see on the horizon with the vaccines now being deployed and everything? Or is this, is this something that we just really can't say anything about at this point in terms of closing this crisis and bringing this sort of closure and relief that so many societies uh, are desperately dreaming of at this point? Yeah. Look, I, I will say um, that these, these sort of four or five uh, key tasks of crisis management that we discern that are the, the core of our paradigm are not necessarily sequential they're more like key functions you know you need to to keep sense making not just in the first phase of the crisis but certainly in a, in a protracted crisis like this sense making is an ongoing thing getting things done is an ongoing thing keeping control of uh, of the crisis narrative is an ongoing thing but yes there is this kind of element that does not begin at the beginning comes in you know during the crisis which is this need to start thinking and acting in ways that allows a crisis to uh, abate. Now, when you apply that to, to COVID, then, then clearly you've got to make a distinction between the pandemic and the crisis that it elicits. So vaccination can put an end to the pandemic. It cannot put an end to the crisis. This long shadow stuff, that we talked about already to some extent. So all the social, psychological, humanitarian, economic, geopolitical reverberations of the pandemic and the responses to the pandemic, they will carry on much longer uh, than you know the vaccination campaigns will take in the Western world or in the global north. So the sense of crisis, the sense of threat, the sense of things being out of joint, the high levels of uncertainty about what will happen next, those those will simply continue. They will morph. They will not necessarily or not naturally disappear and crumble just because uh, the global north people have gotten themselves vaccinated. Uh, so we've got to be very realistic about the timeline of the crisis, of the corona crisis, rather than of the coronavirus. And in countries like uh, the Netherlands and Sweden uh, and others, uh, one integral part of bringing a crisis to a close is the whole process of, if you like, politically and socially working through the question, 
what the hell has just happened to us? How could this have happened in the first place? And and by framing that question, you know, which is basically the central question of inquiries, why did this happen? How did this happen? Uh, and then there's always the, the question, what what do we need to do to prevent this from happening again, etc.? But all of that kind of implies that because something bad has happened to us, some of us or some of our systems must have failed in the first place. So our way of processing crisis is still very uh, much shaped by our assumptions, our self-images, our identity as advanced countries with the capability to control things, the capability to tame nature, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we all know, you know, that the origins of this pandemic, uh, as of a couple of the near-miss pandemics uh, that we've had over the last decades or so, are precisely a product of the kind of society, the high-control, globalized, etc., way of life that we have evolved. So there's something deeply paradoxical that we will be looking for to dispense blame to you know authorities and so on for not having stockpiled, for not having planned properly for having made the wrong calls uh, during various stages of the crisis, etc. And for that then to become the dominant kind of um, long shadow of the crisis, even as in other parts of the world, uh, the dominant long shadow will be, you know, people starving, political instability, massive debt problems, coup d'etats, etc., etc. So we've got to think in a very sophisticated way about this issue of how does one bring closure to a crisis? In our part of the world, a large element of that challenge will be about how do we develop rituals of investigation, reflection, acknowledgement, commemoration, humility, solidarity, to come to help all of us come to terms with the enormity of what has happened. Yeah, I, I, what's happened in Swedish nursing homes or what's happened in certain communities in northern Italy, uh, what's happened in, in places like Madrid or what's currently happening uh, in Manaus and, and other parts of Brazil, for example, what's happened in the United States, for God's sake, a half a million people will be dead uh, soonish. Um, the enormity of that and the, the, the level of collective trauma around that, including the trauma among first responders the potential trauma among teachers who just see before their eyes on those screens in you know remote teaching they can just see the the domestic dramas unfold they can just see the kids slipping away from still being learners not turning up anymore and nobody knowing what the hell is happening to them etc yeah, all of that is building up in our systems and 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 what is building up needs to come out in some way so so we need to be very careful, strategic, and also thoughtful and, and compassionate in the way in which we process the enormity of this. Just running our normal government versus opposition, media-fueled kind of blame games, I think is not a scenario that's going to be particularly helpful to deal with this uh, mega-crisis. And on the international stage, uh, and I think I already referred to that, it is in our interest in the interest of bringing closure to this crisis, to be, if you like, generous or to really think big picture 
in the way in which we engage with, uh, you know, uh, global South countries or even within Europe, if you like, the rich North versus the poorer South within Europe. Uh, if we are going to handle the economics, the distributional economics of the pandemic, the way we've handled uh, the Eurozone crisis, we are basically putting the future of the European Union at risk. Uh, we might see, you know, instances of um, maybe not civil war, but but forms of political polarization and on the street polarization that may uh, make Athens in 2011 look like, you know, a picnic. So we've got to be realistic what we are dealing with here. Well, we'll certainly be living in the long shadow of this crisis for probably the rest of our lives. Yeah. I mean, Eric, may be, you know, because I know this all sounds very kind of gloomy and so on. There is obviously this other side of the coin, which the Chinese knew when they, you know, drew up the character for the term crisis, which in Chinese has these sort of two meanings, you know, big problem, big opportunity. Everybody knows this. But, but there is, you know, given the enormous depth and the destabilizing impact of this crisis, there is a huge and already discernible potential for lots of good and even great things to come out of this experience if we play our cards right. Now, the environmental potential benefits of the shock to the system that this is delivered and of the, you know, the valuable improvisations that we have, you know, for the most part, very successfully been making to keep our economies ticking over or large parts of our economies ticking over pretty nicely with uh, you know online based work and production and distribution etc cetera, etc cetera. if if i'm a a city planner or if i'm a traffic planner or if i'm an environmentalist and so on i see you know chance has dealt us evidence that we can actually organize our societies in ways that are very different and which will make it possible to, you know, take a great leap forward in sustainability by relatively simple uh, measures. You know, we don't need to have decades-long regulatory discussions about, uh, you know, can we control energy markets or can we have energy transitions and so on. Just getting people out of their cars for two or three days of the week will make a huge difference in, in many regards. Think of what's happening in e-health. Think of what's happening in distance education. There is this enormous potential. So part of bringing closure to the crisis is not just the negative side of how do we dampen the potentially catastrophic impacts that come from egotistic, uh, short-sighted, opportunistic engagement with the later stages of this crisis. There's also this flip side uh, or a positive side to bringing closure to a crisis. How, how can we maximize the insights, the glimpses that this crisis has offered us at models of growth, models of living, organizing work, orga reorganizing uh, roles in the family structures, perhaps not as relevant to uh, Scandinavians who've already achieved a lot of that, but certainly relevant among, you know, lesser mortals such as Dutchmen, etc. You know, the, it's, it's amazing what's happening to our understandings of fatherhood in periods of protected uh, school uh, lockdowns. 
these fathers are, are, are now coming to the party in a way that existing welfare state arrangements have never uh, incentivized them to. So, so there's a lot of kind of upsides coming out of this uh, crisis that, if we play our cards right, can also help bring it to a close, in a, not just in a gloomy way, but in a benign way. Professor Paul Dehart, Utrecht University, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, absolutely. And look, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You're always a very thoughtful interviewer, Eric. <laughs>